record. Uh, I wonder if I can record mine too. Possibly. I made you a co-host. I don't know. It says pause your recording. We don't want to do that. Okay, we'll just leave it. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, well, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, since we're doing this on the internet, I'll just say I'm John R. I'm an average alcoholic, and I'm happy to be dealt in for another hand today. One of the best average people I've ever met. That's a fact. <laughs> How have you been? Uh, happy birthday, uh, 40. Congrats, man. That's incredible stuff. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I didn't think I'd live this long. You know, I was a kid of the 60s. I was a kid of the 60s, so most of us didn't think we were going to live past 30 or 35. At least those of us who were <laughs> hippies and such. I always say people who can remember the 60s weren't there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in Missouri in uh, the United States, but raised mostly in a little town. It used to be a little town called Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, the, my dad was a broadcaster. He worked for CBS. And uh, so we lived for a while in, a, in the L.A. area, and then he bought a little newspaper and we moved out to Thousand Oaks, which in those days was a real small town. It's not anymore. Uh, that's where I grew up mostly. What was the name of the paper? Can I ask? Sure. It was the Canal Valley news. And then it became later on after they, he sold it and, um, they uh, combined with another newspaper, and then it was called the News Chronicle. I think it still exists. I'm not sure. Right. Nice. It's a long time ago. <laughs> Thousand Oaks and more words. That's, that's what I would have called it. Yeah, it was a wonderful place to grow up. It was, you know, a lot of countryside, a lot of oak trees. That's why they called it Thousand Oaks. And, and um, not very many people. We could go riding horses and go out hiking all over and it was really a, a pretty idyllic place different world yeah um, yeah now it's uh, they call it uh silicone row now in uh, ventura county there's so many businesses and so many people it's not a place i want to live <laughs> uh, how long did you stay there can i ask yeah, I, I probably left um, in the early 70s. I came back for a while um, and uh, did a bunch of drinking there in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, and then uh, after I got sober, I pretty much left. I, I wasn't there after that. I got sober in 81, so that was quite a while ago. Did you try it before without... The, the help of uh, AA and the like, or how did you did you just decide right this is the only option, or did you have a family? Did they push you in, or a friend, or how did you, did you hear about it now? No, my my first experience with um, with sobriety was I got involved with a religious group uh, when I was oh nineteen or twenty, something like that, um, and. Uh, I, I stayed sober for a little while um, until it became okay to start to have 
drinking. I mean, we did communions. I did a lot of communions. But um, after it became okay to drink, it wasn't long after that that I ended up leaving that religious work. And that was in 79, I think, something like that. Then I really got into drinking and using and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, no, actually, my wife, I had a wife and three kids at the time. And um, my wife was busy saying, well, it's either me and the kids or drinking, which is it going to be? And I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> I'm out of here. And uh, it was, it was, by the time I was ready to get sober, I was ready to get sober. I was, I'm one of those people that people in the bar would say, if I ever get that bad, I'll, I'll stop drinking. And I was the guy they'd point to. Nice. So I, I was, yeah, I was only 31 years old when I got sober, but, uh, I, what I wanted to do, I think was die. That's what I really wanted to do. I had attempted suicide when I was a teenager that didn't work out. And, uh, I just didn't believe I'd get to die. And the going to AA, I had a friend that I'd known for years that came into, uh, my family had a office products business and, um, he came in one day and he just looked at me and he said, you know, if you ever want to sit down and have some coffee, we'd be, I'd be happy to do that. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. Cause I, you know, everybody in my town that drank like I did knew everybody else. And if somebody got into AA, we knew about it. And so I knew he was in AA and, uh, that's about the only thing that ever happened that I finally, um, I was on a show called uh, Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if you guys have that yeah. over there. All right. But yeah. I was on that show and I won a bunch of stuff. And and um, in those days, you had to pick stuff out of their shopping area. To And one of the things I picked was a Giorgio's uh, a gift certificate for Giorgio's. And uh, I had driven down to Giorgio's to get my stuff, to get fitted for these clothes that I would never be able to afford otherwise. And I was so drunk by the time I got back, I um, ended up getting stopped by a California highway patrolman who said that um, it took him about 20 miles to finally catch up to me. And, and, and he said, you know, I couldn't drive as fast as you because you were weaving in and out of traffic and it was too dangerous. <laughs> So anyway, they sent me to, he sent me off to jail. And, uh, the first thing I wanted to do was get out of that, get out of there and get a drink. Well, they didn't let me out till about one thirty in the morning and the bars close at two in uh, California in those days. Anyway, I don't know what they do now. And so I ran down Poli street, which is the street that the jail was on to the bottom of the, of the hill where the nearest bar was called the rendezvous room. And I was there just in time to have one drink. <laughs> so I was pretty serious about drinking, you know, mm. and that's when I found out I didn't have my keys with me and I didn't have my yeah. wallet or anything else. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I ended up having to break into the place I was living. I was living above the, above this garage next to the railroad tracks in Ventura, California, because I'd gotten to the point where I just, that that's how far I'd sunk. Um, I was, 
I was living off of, uh, I had gotten into selling life insurance and disability insurance. So I was living off of the money I had made the year before. And uh, I pretty much, that was pretty much a bottom for me. I realized that's pretty insane that, you know, the, I'm getting out of jail for a DUI. And the first thing I want to do is have a drink. And mm. I don't, anyway. So that's when I started going to an AA meeting. I went to a little club in Ventura, California that was on the main boulevard of uh, uh, on the main street in Ventura. And uh, I went in there and went to a noon meeting and I kind of sat in the back and looked around trying to check out their theology, having been in the business. (laughs) And uh, fortunately they didn't have any, they were all pretty much just um, uh, drunks who were, most of them were on, permanent disability and uh they were they were great i mean they really carried my ass for a long time i the first guy i asked to sponsor me moved about a week later <laughs> and uh you know so being a fortune chef i'm getting out of here <laughs> yeah it was pretty funny i just um i i i the guy that had come into my store to our our office product store and said, you know, do you want to go have some coffee? Turned out to be somebody that I contacted in uh, Thousand Oaks. I lived in Ventura, but I traveled all around the county. And I uh, went down and I asked him to be my sponsor at one point, And he, uh, that worked out for a, a short period of time. He actually got to the point where he said, you know, I think you need somebody else to sponsor you because I feel kind of intimidated by you. And I was like, what? <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> you know, my own, my image of myself was not <laughs> all that great. <laughs> and uh, what I found out was he had never really worked the steps. He didn't really know much about anything other than being a good old boy, which he was. He was a great guy. I really liked him. That's why I thought he, I wanted him for a sponsor because everybody liked him. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a pretty good thing if everybody liked him. But anyway, I, that was, uh, I ended up getting back together with my, uh, my estranged wife and, uh, that lasted for a couple of years <laughs> till, till about two or three years sober. And it was like, I can't do this anymore. And we broke up, oh. but uh, that was, and I have a couple of kids from that marriage though, now that are sober, which is kind of cool. Um, one of my daughters is, I think she's 18 years sober now and, uh, teaches meditation and yoga and does all kinds of stuff. It was kind of cool. Do you think it's a genetic disease then when you say that or just progressive then? Well, from what I've researched, there are, there are, um, there are both genetic components and, uh, you know, the old nature nurture argument is is uh i think in neuroscience they're getting to the point where they recognize that it's a combination of both no matter what you're doing because um you know it's like an it's it's almost like uh people belong in the sort of an ecology of humans you know we are social animals and so we may have genetic predispositions and certainly the way that i drank 
if if it was possible to get it, I would have gotten it. But I drank from the get go. I drank obsessively and compulsively. So I think it's 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 both genetic and can be um, can be something you obtain over time because of the way the brain works. You know, it's the the more I'm around people. Um, you know, if you think about it's called interpersonal neurobiology. Um, what they've seen is that we our brain structures are literally changeable by the society within which we exist. Yeah. So if I'm around a bunch of drunks, <laughs> my brain's going to function in a certain way. If I get around a bunch of sober people, that's going to help change the structure and functioning of my brain as well. It just takes time. It just takes time. So and for me, it took quite a bit of time for me to to kind of wake up out of all of the all of the maladaptive behaviors, thinking and beliefs that I had. So you've never had a drink since you've came in then to the fellowship? Uh, it depends on what you mean by came in. I had a I I had gone to a couple of meetings, and then I went to. Uh, like I said, I sold life and disability insurance, and I was um, one of their top new salespeople. So I went to a um, a, a uh, conference in um, Bermuda, and uh, that conference. I tried to stay sober during that conference, but by the end or the last night of the conference, which was a Sunday night, um, I. <laughs> I was sitting at a bar with a drink in my hand and I hadn't had a drink the whole weekend and I didn't realize how that had happened. It was just, there I was with this really short pour, which was kind of upsetting. And I think what I realized then was the, the very first word of the first step is very important. We, you know, that we, I think is really important. Um, Anyway, that was my last <clears throat> experience in a bar. And the next day I flew back to California from Bermuda and uh, I had to have a couple of drinks on the plane. I just couldn't make it back. But that's the last, that was my last day. And that's the day I use as my sobriety date, April Fool's Day, 1981. Um, and, and from then on, no, I haven't. There were a lot of times when I, <laughs> I felt like, well, I did a lot of things that I think were ways to try and, and uh, avoid some of the emotional and mental pain, but drinking wasn't one of them. You know, sex was one of them. Going to a shitload of meetings instead of paying attention to my work, <laughs> um, yeah. things like that. I did a lot of those kind of things. You know, ways to try and avoid. I used a lot of the, I don't know if you saw my spiritual bypassing thing, but uh, I think a lot of my efforts were in, in the so-called spiritual realm were a way of trying to bypass the conflicts, those inner conflicts that um, both emotional and mental that I just wasn't ready to deal with. And uh, so I thought I could get, you know, get really spiritual and get high and, uh, you know, climb that ladder and be at the top of a mountain. Like I always say, with long flowing robes and untouched by anything like a real human emotion. 
<laughs> but <clears throat> didn't work out too well. <laughs> I ended up in a treatment center <laughs> instead at about 11 years sober. <laughs> How long did you stay there? Uh, 30 days. It was a 30-day program. I didn't even realize that I was depressed. The guy asked me, the psychiatrist asked me, how long have you been depressed? And I said, oh, is that what this is? I just thought I was doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, that I wasn't spiritual enough or I wasn't doing the steps right. I mean, I worked the steps like crazy, you know. And, of course, I was a believer, too. You know, mm -hmm. I came in as a believer, quote, unquote, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I, I, you know, I had a guy, I had a guy who really helped me. His name was Father Bill Wilson. And uh, an Irish guy, and he used to say, I'm not that Bill Wilson, he'd say. But, um, you know, I went to him at a retreat center that I used to go to out in Malibu and, and uh, told him all this conflict I was having with Jesus and religion and all that stuff. And he, uh, he picked up the Bible in one hand and the big book in the other, and he says, you know, this book is pretty good for a lot of folks. He's talking about the Bible. He says, but... For guys like you and me, stick with a big book, he says. Well, that kind of helped for a, for a long time, for several years. I just kept it simple. I didn't get into arguments about, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the big book that I just, <laughs> and the 12 and 12, that I just don't agree with. But I didn't, I just didn't get into the arguments. I just didn't let myself go there. And, uh, but after I went into treat, this treatment center, at about 11 years, I think I was, um, what I realized is I had spent my whole, most of my life trying to attain some spiritual mountaintop as a spiritual seeker so that I could rise above and transcend my own humanness. And that treatment center really helped me because it gave me the, I finally recognized that is not the point. The, the point isn't... 293, you were there in the treatment center. Yeah, somewhere around there. A place called uh, Sierra Tucson, out in, out in the desert of Tucson. And, uh, and that started a whole, different, a whole different journey for me. I started going back into a lot of the stuff that I had thought I believed in um, through my religious tra training and all of that stuff. And um, it was actually pretty difficult. I, I needed to go back and do some serious, almost academic study of that, of the belief systems and the ideas that I had gotten from my rather fundamentalist training. <clears throat> and slowly but surely, I came to realize that I'm, I just don't believe that stuff. You know, it, it, it's not supportable by evidence. And uh, that's when I started telling people I didn't believe in God. And what was the uh, kickback then? Um, actually, uh, wasn't a hell of a lot. I mean, there are people who just can't stand hearing me talk, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but that's always been true. There have always been those people, you know. But when I got sober, where I got sober in Southern California, we had atheists and agnostics that. Nobody made a big deal about it. It was, you know, it's just, this is what I believe. This is what the other person believes. And, and we used to, I remember at a, I was at a club called the hole in the sky in Southern California. I used to go to, and, uh, 
And people would get up to talk. You had to get behind a podium because there'd be a hundred people in the meeting on a weekend, on a, a noon meeting. Um, they're huge meetings. So you had to get behind the podium and somebody would get up and they'd say their bit. And then somebody else would get up and say, no, that's not how it is. Here's how it is. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and originally I thought, oh man, a fight's going to break out. But that isn't what happened. What ended up happening is everybody would go out to coffee together <laughs> and laugh and have a good time. It's not that way around here anymore. It doesn't seem to me, at least a lot of the meetings I've been to, the the ones that aren't the secular meetings, um, it, there seems to be a homogeneity about the meetings now where everybody either has to agree or I just don't ever go to that meeting again. You know, yeah. we, you all have to agree that this is how it is. And if you don't have God, you won't be able to stay sober. And if you don't believe this, and if you don't work the steps this way, it won't work and blah, 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 blah. Um, that's kind of sad to me because supposedly it's about having an open mind. And it doesn't sound very open-minded to me. Yeah. Willingness, open-mindedness, and honesty, you know? Yeah, now people say don't even say the mindedness anymore. They say willingness, openness. Like, yeah. <laughs> like the openness means I'm supposed to just dump all my emotions on you. <laughs> Not open mindedness. That's. But uh, you know, it may just be the areas that I've been in. I, I've traveled a lot in the last um, couple of decades because I was doing a. Well, I, I went back to college and I got a master's degree and then I went on for a PhD and like that kind of stuff. And um, so I traveled quite a bit. I was in Texas and South Dakota at a tribal college, a lot of different places. And it just seems to me like AA has seems to have gotten a lot more like this country has, like the United States has, has gotten very black and white. Um, yeah. And... Uh, that's kind of sad. Completely. I took um, a long period of um, going to like traditional meetings or whatever you want to call them, non-secular, non-free thinking. And I just couldn't get it. Do you know what I mean? All like, regardless of someone's age or whatever, believing in this thing or believing in that thing, I'm looking at people around my age or younger and they're like, oh no, there's a God, you know, I'm just, for fuck's sake, you as well. Like it's, um, <laughs> it's, it, like un until I met a member or two from this country, uh, Ireland, on fucking on Zoom, I, I literally I couldn't find anyone. The nearest thing I found to like a, a free thinking person was, oh no, I used to not, but now I do. That's just like, oh right, Jesus. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Zoom was great that way. So I got to meet people like yourself and others, and but I I, I don't know how much like I was doing it. I, I was able to go and just be that guy who didn't, you know, believe, but it was still getting to me, you know? Like one lad would be on about how violent he was a few years ago, and then he'd be the first lad to put his hands on his face and say the prayers at the end of the meeting. You're like, ah, no, right. Like, this is, uh, this is not. Uh, well, it seems to work for a lot of people, and it did for me for a little while, for a few years. Um, how did it feel you know, to lose it then, can I ask? Pardon? How did it feel to lose it? Because you said, oh, or like well, you your opinion on it. Then it it took me a, it took me quite a while. I, I 
like I said, I did a lot of a lot of um, research and uh, into a lot of, the, and I'm specifically talking about the Bible and Christianity and all of that. Um, you know, when I say I don't believe in God, what I mean is what what the word God usually means is some spirit or being or entity that is omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, and you know. Uh, able to <laughs> reach down and change the outcome of a <laughs> of a football game <laughs> based on my prayers. Um, I that's what I don't believe in. I I do think that there mm -hmm. is energy in the universe. There's there's a, um, you know if you look at Taoism for instance, there, there's a way the universe works. There is a flow to the universe, whether you want to call it evolution or energy or whatever. Um, so some people I hear talk, they say, oh, that's what I believe God is. Well, that's kind of a cop out <laughs> because that's not what the word God implies. I was telling somebody today, for me, the idea of God is more like the gap theory. You know, there's a gap between what I know and can know and then the mystery. And I fill in that gap with the word God. <laughs> and to me, that's kind of a cop out. Why don't I just say, I don't know, you know, that's, that's the agnostic um, approach is I don't know. Now there are things that I, I do know there are, for instance, some of the things that are ascribed in the Bible as having happened pretty clearly did not happen. <laughs> okay, sorry, they just didn't happen. But uh, it, it to answer your question more directly, it wasn't easy. It was difficult. Um, I went through a lot of, um, I would call them mental, um, uh, mental and emotional angst around all of it because I had spent many years believing a different way and mm. and coming to not believe as I call it <laughs> was not easy and then and then being willing to say in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I don't believe in God that was another step um, I started doing that probably around 20 years sober uh, and in fact, that's the reason Free Thinkers Living Sober Group got started was because a couple of guys heard me say that a few times and said, well, are you willing to help us start a meeting? Yes. And I said, sure. What do you want to start it for? <laughs> How Excuse long me. has that meeting running now, can I ask? Uh, it's only been about, what, seven years, I think, 2014. All right. Uh, right around the time when um, the Santa Monica Convention actually happened, right around the same time, although we didn't know about it, it was it was going to happen right around the same time we started it. And then a uh, couple of people who were trying to get that together came out and visited our meeting and said, oh, we're doing this thing and you should come and like that. But I didn't have the money to be able to go, so I didn't. I lived in Santa Monica for a while, years ago. I was in the, I was an actor, and so I. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so you notice, huh? 
Did you book anything? Oh, I did theater and some independent film and a little bit of television, but nothing to sneeze at. It was mm. I wasn't ambitious enough to <laughs> pardon me. <coughs> oh, my voice. That's impressive. But I got a chance to meet a lot of people in the business and hang out, and that was fun. And I mm. uh, did a lot of – I enjoyed doing theater more than anything, but I, I just really couldn't handle New York. So um, It's live, and it? It's real. It's um, theater. Yeah, it's, it's interactive. It's like Zoom in the sense. I was telling that to someone the other day, like where it's you get to actually like kind of interact with the person, the speaker, you know. Yeah, it's there's a whole different kind of energy involved with theater that you just don't get in film, um, or in television for that. Even live TV, you don't get that kind of. I, I remember doing a, I did a promo that was actually a live television spot for a show that we were doing and it, it was just weird because there's no audience there's just cameras and uh it, it was just weird but you're know, playing least with, to a crowd in the in the spotlight yeah, no you're not playing to anything <laughs> but like in the the, the piece it, it's like you are playing though no in the sense you're playing to me you at home well yeah except that there's no energy coming back I mean, the, you know, when you're on stage in live theater, there you can feel the audience, you can feel the energy and the energy of the other actors, and um, you know, it's a whole different, a whole different scene than than having a camera poking its eye at you. <laughs> How long did you stay at that? Can I ask? Pardon? How long were you uh, acting for? Can I ask? Well, I started at about age eleven, and I did it off and on. And then when I went off and did the religious thing, part of what I did was put on shows and, uh, you know, I played music, um, guitar and singing. I was trained in opera and, um, okay. and yeah. And then I did, uh, um, and after I left that, I went back and did some more, um, stage work. Uh, but being a drunk, it's really, <laughs> One of the directors said, we never know what you're going to do or say. <laughs> it's scary. And after I got sober, I went and did, uh, I actually, my first year of sobriety, the day of my first year of sobriety was opening night for me in Man of La Mancha, where I played the, I played the lead in the Man of La Mancha. And that was a trip. That was a real trip. Nervous then, I'd say. Pardon? You get nervous doing it then, were you? No, no. Um, well, I always get nervous before a performance, but I'm—I'd be more nervous if I weren't nervous, <laughs> because that's you know it helps generate the energy. Um, but I did that a couple—I did that show a couple of times, and uh, that was—that was. It's hard to top that particular part. It's hard to get a too many parts that are better than that. Some of the Shakespeare stuff is pretty pretty good but uh doing a because yeah. that part is three different parts it's actually you're playing the author cervantes then you're playing alonso who is the old man and then you're playing don quixote who is his delusion um and that's always a challenge anyway 
But that was a trip. That was my very first AA birthday. It was opening night in that play. <laughs> All right, so 82 was... Uh, yep. Wow. Yep. Nice. So, um, in early sobriety, uh, you said that you, you, you went to a lot of meetings and stuff and coffees afterwards. Yep. How, yeah. I was gonna, how do you... Like when you look back at it now, let's say people that are coming into Zoom and say their first year is they're having coffees with us online or whatever. How do you feel that they don't get the, the hug or the pat on the back or, you know, no, no, just keep your change. I'll get you the coffee. You know, the, I like think the, they, the warmer I think, welcome, if you get me. Yeah, but I, I think it's different. But the most important thing from my perspective is that they're getting the influence and the, and, and the people. Um, like I said, I think that our brains get changed and that's part of how they get changed is through that exchange of information and energy, not necessarily even in the words. It's not necessarily, um, the thinking part of it, the interchange between people, that connectedness is part of what happens. And I think it's important for anyone who's new to be able to have a lot of that connection. Um, I was pretty anti-dependent. I was, I didn't really want to get too close to anybody, but it still had an impact. And going to a lot of meetings, I went to three and four meetings a day, a lot of times. Um, you know, when I, except for when I was, if I was on stage or something, you know, that limited the amount of time that I could go to meetings, but mm -hmm. I'd still go to at least one or two meetings a day. Because where I was in Southern California, it was easy to do. We had 2,500 meetings a week in the L.A. area. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of meetings. And, uh, and I think on Zoom, we have a lot of, of people who are new coming into our Zoom meeting. And, um, you know, what I always suggest is, you know, go to a lot of meetings. Go to a lot of different meetings. And uh, don't sweat the small shit, you know. You're going to hear things you don't agree with. It doesn't matter because it's not really what it's not really what we believe that's important. It's what we do. That's what makes the changes. And if I can get connected with some people, I didn't connect with everybody in AA. There were people in AA I just didn't like. Nope. And, you know, if you haven't met somebody you don't like in AA, you're not going to enough meetings. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... But the one, the ones that I did get on with, they were great, and uh, the I got a chance to connect with a bunch of old timers, and uh, that was always a lot of fun because they could tell me, you know, even th back then, people were saying, you know, it has really changed. It's not like it used to be. There, people didn't used to talk about all this crap they talk about now. Well, I had a friend who was the central office guy who'd gotten sober in the 40s, and he said, you know, that's a bunch of horseshit. We used to talk about everything. <laughs> you know, we didn't only talk about the solution. He says, if you don't know the problem, you can't find a solution. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think one of the things that happens is I've gotten a whole different perspective on AA over 40 years than than I had my first year or two. So having people around who had that kind of perspective really helped me because I didn't take a lot of that stuff so seriously. 
has your view changed again in the last year with Zoom? Of what? You said that your opinion has changed the last 40 years, but in the last year as well, has it changed even more because you have different Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think Ireland so. Going UK to your meeting, all parts of America. And I've had to refine some of the things that I've looked at and thought about. I, I personally, I really like reading and studying. You know, I've really been getting into um, interpersonal neurobiology, neuroscience, um, that kind of stuff, as well as I, I've been a meditator for 40 years, so I continue to do that. But uh, but a lot of the science that's around now is just fascinating. You know, we know so much more and we know so little. I mean, comparatively speaking about the brain, and the mind, we know very little, but much more than we did even 10 years ago, 15 mm -hmm. years ago. Touch of and a I've... button as well now. We don't have to read a whole book. We can YouTube, <laughs> you know what I mean? Documentaries, touch of a button. Well, seconds away. Yep, I enjoy it. I really enjoy that. And I, I got into um, quantum mechanics for a while. I was doing a lot of reading in that and complexity theory. And, you know, I just, I'm all over the place. <laughs> I'm just, I'm curious about all this stuff. And there's way too much to know to ever think that you know it all. That's beautiful. That's a great quote. Nice. Tell me this. I heard you mentioning um, Dirty John before and another member. Dirty Jack. Yeah. Dirty Jack. Apologies. Well, I heard something along the line. <laughs> uh, what was he like? Because uh, that day I overheard the two E on about it was like, whoa, they're different parts. So, uh, yeah, well, small AA is, but then how like <laughs> the reach it has. He was a trip. I mean, he he probably helped um in those days you know uh, you've probably heard of clancy and, yes, and clancy had his own way of getting on and getting off you know and everybody was supposed to wear suits and ties and dresses and you know be clean shaven and all of that stuff and for some people they really needed that kind of structure and discipline and all that but those of us who weren't like that <laughs> <laughs> um where the dirty comes in <laughs> we kind of we kind of went with dirty jack you know he is they they call him that because he was a mechanic so his hands were always dirty but they probably called him that also because he had a mouth on him um but he was also uh he was really able to accept people from where they were instead of telling them they had to be something different so you know the people in those days, um, there were there were a lot of people who were um, uh, well. That's when AIDS was really starting to have a profound impact on um, the what used to be called gay and lesbian. Now it's LGBTQ plus, <laughs> um, but it was having a profound impact on people, and um, and there were a lot of us that you know were wearing earrings and long hair i had really long hair and you know would some people were wearing collars and all kinds of stuff you know and and we needed somebody too you know we needed somebody that 
we could go to that had been sober a long time. Jack, when I met him, I think I was four or five years sober, and he was 25 or 26 years sober at the time. He's since passed away um, a few years ago. Uh, but he was really good at working with people that a lot of other people didn't want to work with. <laughs> and he was a photographer, so he did all my portrait <laughs> work all yeah. my yeah all my publicity photos and all that stuff he did um, yeah, eight by that, ten that was cool you know um and he had a lot of different people in the business that came to him uh so and that was fun you know there's in fact there's a guy now that's probably made 250 some films i won't say who it is because he's still alive and he's still around but um he that he was one of jack's people and he uh he was just helping some guy some actor on a sound stage you know he went there to support him and a director said are you an actor <laughs> and, you know and he looked mean and he had all these tattoos and shit all over him you know mm -hmm. and uh, he said no he says well would you like to be <laughs> and that's how he ended up getting in the movies and now he's he's done a ton of films and he's you know uh, a sweetheart of a guy and he looks like he would just you know kill yeah, you yeah. by just looking at you <laughs> yeah. but you know guys like that jack was 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 good with you know and uh i didn't care what you were or who you were just wanted to help yeah, That's yeah. Beautiful. i mean the deal is the cynic went on, you know, without this, there's nothing else is just not picking up <clears throat> and whatever it takes to do that. You know, this idea that you have to be a certain way, look a certain way, act a certain way, believe a certain way and all of that crap just to be able to stay sober. I just, I think it does more harm than good. You know, just my own not so humble opinion. <laughs> Where was your first meeting, can I ask? Yeah, the first meeting I went to was in Ventura, California. That that little clubhouse, you actually had to go up some stairs to get to it, so, uh, some steps. And they each had step one, two, three, four written on them. And uh, do that, you remember from that then? From being there, do you remember like a person smoking cigarettes? or? <laughs> everybody, everybody smoked practically back then. It seemed like... In fact, I didn't smoke when I got sober, and I started smoking <laughs> after I got sober, just what out of self-defense. <laughs> you know, self-defense, man. It was, yeah, and yeah. it's one of those things. You know, it's one of those things I talked about where, you know, you you do other things to try and avoid the stuff that's going on inside, and smoking was one of the things I used. Sex was another one. And, um, you know, relationships, I loved falling in love. That was my thing. Just fall in love and I then pay that. the price for it, <laughs> the pain for it. Um, but yeah, that, it was an, an old clubhouse. Huh? We're an eager bunch, all right? Well, anything that'll make me feel different than how I feel. As long as I don't drink, as long as I don't use, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. 
I'll deal with it later. <laughs> the first thing I needed to do was just not, I needed to get over picking up a drink or any other of those other dry goods that I used. <laughs> Were you a bit of a drug guy as well? Oh yeah, I did almost anything I could get my hands on. Nice. Anything that was available. <laughs> you know, um, actually what was interesting, what I found for me, I did a lot of cocaine, but mostly I did cocaine so that I could keep drinking. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're playing music and it's late at night and you're drinking, you need something to be able to keep going, you know, or I'd get to the 6 a.m. bar in the morning and we'd be watching the game shows or whatever and drinking. Well, you got to have a pick me up to be able to keep going. <laughs> yeah, I was so. on that show. I was on that show. <laughs> <laughs> so sure you were. <laughs> it was pretty interesting days. And, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's, that's what my deal was back then until I got into that religious group. And then when I got out of that, guess what I went back to? I still think I wouldn't. If I were going to do any of that kind of stuff again, it'd probably be psychedelics. <laughs> I, yeah, I've a few but that's people. that's probably, you know, um, not really what I need to do because what I found out was every time I got where I wanted to go with a psychedelic, I came down again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like there's got to be a way to do this without having to. And meditation is my way of doing it. It's just, pardon? I was telling someone the other night that I was in the bar once with my father and he's got a grey beard, you know? And I was off my fucking head on these mushrooms. And I looked over at him, sure, and he has this big black beard. And I'm like, oh, I just got to get out of this place. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell. Oh, man. I still think the reason I never had a bad trip that I can remember uh, anyway was because I usually did it out in nature. I didn't do it in a city. The one time I did a psychedelic in the city, um, it was, I didn't like it at all because I could feel all of the energy going through the electricity lines and all the traffic mm -hmm. and everything else. It was like, God, get me out of here. I don't like this. But, you know, if you're out in, out in nature or whatever, it's, it's a whole different vibe. Uh, this is an odd question. Does uh, hearing <laughs> someone slip encourage you, scare you, like uh, relieve you, knock you? Like, you know, say if you're like, shit, they had 20 years, you know, like, is that, like you immediately jumping on a Zoom when you hear about someone that with long sobriety or? Not really. But yeah, I. Patient, isn't I, it? I, I don't. Um, patient. I don't, I don't, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about that kind of stuff and in quite a number of years, um, my perspective on that has shifted to where uh, I think the most dangerous time for me was, like I said, when I was 11 years sober and ended up going into treatment because I wasn't dealing with the stuff that was going on underneath the surface. And, you know, I, I didn't, I drink, when I drank, I drank for the effect. <laughs> yeah. You know, originally it was because it made me feel good. And then slowly but surely it was because I wanted to not feel bad. You know what I mean? It was like, I, I, yeah. I just was trying to avoid 
what was troubling me and what was bad and what was wrong and I didn't know a solution to it. So I've found that the more I can stay in the present and be with whatever is going on and embrace whatever is going on inside of me and around me, the I'm far less likely to be looking for some way out of here. You know, that, that old song, gotta be a way out of here. Said the Joker to the thief, you know. Yeah, Jimmy. <laughs> Actually, it was Bob Dylan that wrote it, but yeah. Um, Bob Dylan wrote a lot of things, didn't he? <laughs> and they yeah, just he never, did. <laughs> the animals, uh, House of the Rising Sun. He still is. Me. He still is writing a lot of things. Incredible, it's pretty it? amazing. Yeah, he's a pretty amazing guy. But anyway, that's I. And and I also don't think that it's a bad thing necessarily. You know, I hear people say, "Well, you know, he he had ten years of sobriety and he drank, so he has to start all over." Well, I don't mm-hmm. think that's how life works. I think we learn things as we grow and live. And just because somebody drank doesn't mean they have to throw away all the experience they had from their life. In fact, they might have gotten something from the experience of having drank. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm just not as certain anymore of some of the memes <laughs> that we hear. Oh, well, he drank, so he was doing something wrong, so he must have to start over because he missed something and he should have. I don't know if that's true. He didn't you have know? a higher power. He didn't pray. He didn't get Yeah, right. He didn't do it right. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Or maybe he had the wrong higher power. Maybe that was the problem. That's the he one. Was, Why don't you use mine? He was, He's great. Yeah. He's She's worshiping great. the wrong God, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, our There's journey is. There's a lot of pettiness is, in AA, isn't there? There's a lot of, like, the thing I like about your meeting, there's good people there. The Tuss knew there's good people there. Sometimes you just go, and it's weird to get a, a bad vibe in a Zoom room, but you just forget <laughs> it sometimes, you know? Because the first yeah. time I ever heard of a good vibe, my friend uh, Mary was with me in, 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 in person. This is before Zoom or pandemic. She was just there like, it's a good fucking room, man. You know? I can feel it. I can fucking feel it. And I was there, what do you mean? <laughs> This is a deadly room for meetings. And I was just there like, yeah, it's pretty good. How did you know? It's like, I know it. I just fucking know it. <laughs> I had a sponsor who told me once, though, this is, you'll enjoy this. He said, you know, can I use swear words in this <laughs> podcast? Of course, a way. I have to quote him exactly. He said, if you go to a meeting and it's fucked, don't leave it and go fuck up another one. he had a way of putting things that really brought it back home instead of you know it's i and that's something i've learned too is you know if i'm uncomfortable in something that may be that may be for me you know i i've i try and be present with whatever's going on inside of me and it doesn't necessarily mean that the person that that I'm hearing that maybe I disagree with or seems to me to be off base or whatever, it doesn't mean that I have to accept that person or agree with that person. But I need to be able to learn how to be present with whatever's going on and accept that the way it is is the way it is. And 
if something's upsetting me, then what's going on with me? How can I embrace that? Not like I want to change me or make me be different or feel different. What I need to do is learn how to be present with me and be okay with that. You know, I spent so many years trying to change me to be what I thought I had to be in order to be enough. And well, to me, that's, that's not the deal. <laughs> the deal yeah. is how do I learn how to love, embrace, and have compassion for myself and for others? Because everybody's got deal. Everybody's got an issue. Everybody's got a problem. Everybody's got their own road to travel. And most of the time, it doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> yeah. We used to have a guy who would sit in the rooms. This is this is in the rooms here where um, in regular meet, AA meeting. And he would literally start preaching. I mean, literally talk about how, you know, not always use Jesus, but sometimes even that. And he'd talk about, you know, the flesh and the world and you have to you have to be away from the world and, you know, and the evil of the flesh and all this stuff. And there was a point in time when I would listen to that and it would I just start grinding inside. And I had to sit and be with it while he was doing it. I still don't think it's that that's an appropriate thing to do in a meeting. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was I had stuff going on with it. What I realized was I still hadn't resolved those ideas within myself to let go of them enough to be neutral about his beliefs. Those are just his beliefs. What the fuck difference does it make what he believes? The guy is not a guy I would want to emulate, be with, or even be around. No. So why was I so upset? To me, that's what I try and do. And at this point, I think if I heard that again in a meeting, I might be willing to at least say, hey, you know, it's not appropriate to lay all this religious stuff on people. Most of the time, though, I'll just talk about where I'm at, how I hold things. And uh, <laughs> that's some people walk out of the room if I start talking. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> better them than me <laughs> my own self be true yeah don't go don't go and fuck another meat no <laughs> <laughs> you know if you don't like what i'm sharing that's fine but i don't share for everybody uh, you know most of the time i'm talking for me first of all and second of all for that guy in the room that's been hearing all this stuff that doesn't believe it and doesn't buy it and thinks he can't stay sober because he doesn't go along with it and I want him to know that, you know what, you can stay sober regardless of any fucking asshole that lives in this earth. You just need to make a decision and stick with the decision and find your people. Because your people are here. You just got to find them. That's what I love about the secular meetings, because that's how we find our people. Yeah. Yes, your group is worldwide, man. Same with ours. It's... um. My buddy has a, a like a thing he says, and I only understood it he met the other day. The people I hang out in AA with are the people I would have drank with, like kind of <laughs> mad, fucking unusual hippie types. <laughs> Don't give a fuck if you're gay or straight, black or white, you know. Just yeah. if I would have drank with you, I, I want to be friends with you, you know. Musicians, like he's 
And I only understood what he meant that the other day. I think I was at a traditional meeting as well, and I was listening to something like that. Jesus, I can't believe that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it takes all of us, though, ultimately, right. you know. We, we, we find our tribe, and hopefully we can get along with them, too. You know, you look at the secular groups, and there are we're going to start a new workshop um after we're done with this last emotional sobriety workshop uh that's at the end of this month May 14th, uh, we're gonna, I believe. the 30th yeah um nice. we're going to start a new one and it's going to be basically about um uh i i thought of a new title for it if i could remember what it is um varieties of secular sobriety you know, like our varieties of secular experience. Remember that William James book, Varieties of Religious Experience? Oh, <laughs> this is varieties of secular experience. Because within the secular realm, if you go on Facebook to some of these sites, I mean, there's a wide swath of different approaches, beliefs. You know, people who don't want to have anything to do with the steps, they don't want to have anything to do with AA, they don't want to have to do with any of this spiritual stuff, whatever that means, and blah, 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 all the way to people who are what my friend Joe calls um, AA apologists, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, hey, they all, believe, they all belong in the room. So yeah. what we're going to try and do with this workshop is have different speakers with different points of view around secular experience talk about their experience and then open it up for the participants to be able to share and ask questions or whatever that'll be a three-piece panel same, uh, same no it's going to be just be one it'll be a half hour speaker and yeah. then an hour for participation the very first speaker is going to be a guy <clears throat> whom i really like that wrote a book called um, one breath at a time it's about combining um buddhist uh the buddhist path with the 12 steps and yeah. it's one of the best books i've found and i've read most of the books on buddhism and the 12 steps uh and he's uh you know he teaches meditation and he has his has groups and whatnot um in fact he was my daughter's mentor uh when she was uh getting certified as a meditation teacher yeah, small um, world but, you know, I think that would be a great thing. He's, and he'll talk for half an hour on whatever he talks about. I, I told him, you talk about what you want to talk about. Exactly. And, then, and then we'll open it up. And, you know, and I'd like to get some people who are, you know, I don't do the steps. I don't believe in the steps and blah, blah, blah. Or mm -hmm. people who say, well, here's what the steps do and here's how I do them. You know, um, I wouldn't mind getting Glenn Rader on there. I think that would be fun. I really like his book. Um that How often moderate... would that be? Monthly or would that be? Every yeah, two once, or a month, once a month. Once a month. Yeah, the the every other month was I think is too far apart. Although for emotional sobriety workshops, they were so they're pretty involved. So we needed the extra time. You're getting one twenty, one fifty at that. You know what I mean? That's an impressive number every time. Yeah, we. I mean, yeah, the, the first, the very first one, the very first one, there were over two hundred people. Fuck. Um, yeah, and it was a three-hour workshop. I mean, it yeah, was yeah. not – that was a long one. Mm. So we'll see. It's just, you know, I feel like um, 
this is a way that I can be of service. And uh, I think it's something that, that will be useful for, especially for new people. That's, that's my primary focus on doing this new workshop because the emotional sobriety workshop, that's pretty much, you know, after you've been around a while, <laughs> you start thinking about that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but this one I think is going to be, I, at least the way I'm thinking of it and Joe and I are kind of doing it together again. Um, I'm thinking of it more for people who are in their early years of sobriety. And what do they want to hear about how to walk it, this path of sobriety? How do different people do it? You know. Mm. So we'll see. It might work. Might not. <laughs> it's just one great thing about Zoom and the recordings. Like be it this one today, or you know what I mean. Who it'll help one person, two people, a hundred. Who knows? You know. Your emotional yeah, sobriety, the the toast new, the higher paloozas. Uh, there's so many as well that we don't know. John Sheldon's ones. Yeah. Podcast. Um, John's, you know. the problem with John Sheldon's thing is he does them on Friday nights and I'm teaching. <laughs> so I never get to go. I always want to, but I have to listen to him after the fact. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, but that's the great thing about it, though. You, you get to listen to it after, you know? Yep. Like, uh, yeah. John's great. He's, he, I'm really glad to see that he's kind of backed off on a lot of his stuff. He was doing way too much. He was even working on our emotional sobriety workshops. He was doing, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. Nice. And, um, he spoke for us once. I don't know if I sent you that recording. Yeah, uh, I saw it. Yep. So I actually only listened again the other day. I was out walking and uh, it was nice. It's always nice to hear um, someone who does the interviewing or whatever, like their side of the story. Like, you know, because, yeah. Uh, yeah, good fella, good fella. Uh, only have one or two questions left now, if that's all right with you. Sure. Do you have a slogan or a phrase, advice, anything that you, you were given in early sobriety, early recovery? <laughs> well, Which one of the things my sponsor said is easy do it yeah. instead yeah. of easy does it. <laughs> that was his. The thing that helped me... One of the things that he said that really helped me, um, I was a writer and I was trying to write and I was having a really hard time doing it. And he said, just do one piece of paper at a time. And when I went to um, back to school, that phrase really helped me because I'm one of these guys that if I think about all the things I have to do and all the stuff I got to get done, uh, I get overwhelmed and I don't do anything. <laughs> So I always have to keep boiling yeah, back down to well. <laughs> just do one piece of paper at a time. And uh, that got me through graduate school. <laughs> I was listening then, to an audio book the other night and your man said that this author wrote like a book every year for 35 years. And then when asked about it, oh, just 200 shitty words a day. Then all of a sudden I'll write more because you just, as soon as you start, yep. just bang, you stay at it. I had a, a friend who's a poet also, and he said, um, he said, I write a poem every day. And I said, you're kidding. He said, oh, I didn't say I wrote a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, if that's, that's the thing that, uh, the other thing they, 
I learned about writing was if you wait for the inspiration, you'll be waiting a long time. What you got to do is show up so that when the inspiration comes, you're sitting there writing. <laughs> kind of what your friend was saying too, you know, it's just, you have to make yourself available for the inspiration. If you're not available for it, it doesn't matter if it comes or not, because you won't be there to, to write it down. And I do have a buddy that um, they just literally every time on their phone just like leaving voice messages from themselves, just, you know. And every now and then you just hear just like yellow banana peel. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Elaborate more, like, did I slip on the yellow banana? Like, how are you going to get out of that three or four words? Like, yeah, but I don't know. It works for them. Works for them. Yeah. You're talented. You're talented. Don't you? I think one of the things that uh, academic writing kind of did a number on me for a while because there's it's really a different way of writing than create mm -hmm. so-called creative writing, and it takes a while to to uh, shift gears. I guess is what I would call it. To get out of the more academically oriented style. Yeah. Either that or that's just an excuse. <laughs> Love an excuse. Blame it on the weather, man, as the song goes. As soon as you find that moment of creativity or just fucking encouragement, isn't it? Bang. Sometimes you, you, you can't stop either, which is the, the mad thing, in my opinion. But you need to take a break then other times. Do you find as well, though, like when you were doing them, them uh, essays or like you, you, a deadline was better for you? Because a lot of alcoholics, like I always found, it's like, well, I had a month to do it. So what did I do? I waited two days and I, and I stayed up for <laughs> yeah. 36 hours. Yeah. Or like Joe says, yeah, there was a deadline and vroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cat is laid back, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> He's fun. I enjoy you have a link for the meeting? No, I like him a lot. He's, he's a great dude. Great dude. Yep. I've been working on this anthology, or not anthology, this collection of poems that I've been trying to get put together. I've been doing it now for, oh, I don't know, nine months or a year. And I am i don't know if I'm anywhere closer to finishing it than I was nine months ago. But I just, you know, I keep plugging away, trying to get it finished. And uh, I don't think a deadline would help me. <laughs> Of course, poetry is a whole different kind of writing. So I know some of the things that I look at, it's like, I just, I don't remember who it was who said it. I never finish a poem. I abandon them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, I know one of my favorite poets is a guy named Leonard Cohen, who uh, talked about how it could take him years to finish a poem because it just didn't ever get right. And, uh, I don't know. Or that may just be an excuse. <laughs> my buddy went to see him when he came to Dublin. And oh, yeah? He bought his ticket for his wife, and his wife bought her ticket for him. And uh, they stayed in your house, would say, in the middle of Dublin. But he was playing for two nights, and they got to hear him the second night for free. 
because where they were situated, they could hear them perfectly. Oh, but they wow. Didn't know that because the first night they were at the concert, yeah. And then right. they stayed at our house, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait till you hear at eight o'clock when we have our dinner, you know? Like, so fucking, you know? And all of a sudden say, like, you can hear that, can't you? <laughs> got to hear him the next night for free lovely man yeah he's Great. amazing yep good example of somebody who just kept doing what he was doing and <laughs> okay it was amazing i really i really like a lot of his work most of it actually now to the genie question if you had, <laughs> <laughs> if you had three wishes from a genie what would you get Let's see, um, a trillion-dollar lottery, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, you're playing the lotto when you have three wishes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I had a trillion-dollar lottery, there's a, I, I, I would like to start a foundation to work with uh, homeless and, and uh, people who are, have uh, mental illness. I think that would be a, a great thing to do. I'm getting to an age now where it's harder and harder for me to get out and act on some of these things. But, um, mm. and uh, I don't know. What else would I want? Uh, hmm. Maybe an opportunity to get to work with some of the people I always wanted to work with. You know, some, yes. of, the, some of the directors and actors that I wanted to, be able to work with um but again you know I, I look at where i'm at physiologically at 71 uh i don't know how well i'd hold up <laughs> it's, it's, the grand that role that that passes away halfway through the film your grand don't worry we'll get you to work with <laughs> de niro or fucking scorsese or someone no? well they're all getting old too <laughs> Yeah. I actually, the one guy I always wanted to work with was Zeffirelli, who is no longer with us. And um, the he did Romeo and Juliet, the movie okay. that... Um, Franco? Leonardo, is that uh, Zeffirelli. Is yeah, Franco name. Zeffirelli? Yeah. yeah and yeah. and Catherine Hepburn. I would have loved to have been able to work with her. That oh, would have been yeah. fun. <laughs> but C'est la guerre. So that would, the, the, I'm not sure those are wishes that I'd actually make if if the reality were there. If the genie is good enough, he could fucking do it. Or she. One of the things I always enjoyed doing is going and meeting a lot of the people that I wanted to meet. You know, um, hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of Robert Heinlein, but I had a chance to meet with him and Ray Bradbury and some of those guys, um, Robert Bly. Um, so I, I, I didn't need to wish so much. I just needed to go out and do stuff. <laughs> Matt, I met um, this uh, football star. Uh, his name is Niall Quinn. I was telling someone on the other day about this. He, he talked to me for 30 seconds to a minute, yeah. But whatever way he fucking did it, yeah, he made it seem like a half an hour, an hour. Like just really good with people, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, and then I met him later on then and I goes, hey, come here, my brother's actually a bigger fan. Can you record a, a message for me uh, for his birthday? And he was like, yeah, sure. And like, just that, I swear, like that 30 seconds to a minute, he made it seem like a half an hour. Whatever way he shook me hand, talked to me, posed for the photo, just, you know, top notch. That's uh, cool. 
Uh, but I did meet one guy. He's actually an American-born Irish comedian. And uh, I goes, Jesus, man, can, can I get a photo with you? And then he goes, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just real, like, rude about it. And then I oh, was, yeah. like, talking to him. And I'm like, hey, I love that joke. You said, look at the fucking camera. And <laughs> And then, like, literally, he was gone. And, uh, yeah, it made me laugh. But That's was funny. you saying this to Joe the other day. Uh, I think some celebrities are more interested in when you don't know them. Say, me and you are together, and it's like, oh, there's that guy. And you, and the celebrity's like, well, why don't you know me? Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting, though. Thus, most of the people that I've known in the business that are what we used to call A-listers, the people yeah, yeah. who are top of the list, most of them are really lovely people. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, a lot of the assholes get weaned out, <laughs> mm. you know, and at least in the in motion picture business, that's true. I remember um, there was this guy, I don't know if you ever heard of Chuck C. He was a, yeah. it was a really well-known back in the day, and, and uh, his son was this guy named Richard Chamberlain, who was a, a really well-known actor back then. Um, he did Thorn Birds and a bunch of other movies. Uh, anyway, he was really well-known. And I remember a friend of mine was talking about <clears throat> sitting and, and uh, having uh, dinner with Richard Chamberlain and, and a couple other people. And and this friend of mine was busy the whole time. All he wanted to talk about was Richard Chamberlain's dad, Chuck C. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of the dinner, he said, God, I'm really sorry. I probably, I'm sorry. I talked so much about your dad. This is, he says, and, and Chamberlain says, that, that's fine. I really enjoyed it. Usually I have to sit here and talk about myself, but that's much more fun to talk about my dad. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was an interesting story. Nice way to end it. Yeah. Um, actually, I do know one other story about the, uh, this comedian who was first discovered, or he first, um, someone first recognized him at a, and he just did a show in the Olympia. And uh, he goes, are you, are you Jason Manford? And he was like, fixing his tie. I am, I am. I fixed your dad's house the other day. <laughs> so he went from like 100 feet to regular sizing yeah. yeah come here john thank you so much for your time man and uh do you that you want to say before we finish up um not really just uh hope everybody stays sober and has a good time beautiful way to end it thank you so much for your time and we'll stop the recording all right thank you mark